Hey everyone, it's Monsi. You may have noticed, if you've been keeping up with our fundraiser, that our Indiegogo fundraiser has ended officially. However, if you'd still like to claim some of our perks and help us with the creation of Haina Act 3, since we're still aiming for our stretch goals, you can support us at coffee.com slash Hainaipod. That's ko-fi.com slash H-I-N-A-Y-P-O-D. We've got a lot of really cool perks, like the Hainai official album, which is the ad-free, credits-free, ideal order version of Hainai Act 1 and 2, as well as suggest Hainai episode ideas, names for future characters, and even get a 30-second audio message from your favorite Hainai character. So please do help us get to our goals so that we can keep making Hainai even better than ever before. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy Mikey's tale, a Hainai short story, in which we meet Mikey, the only living soul that knows the benefactor's real name. You're listening to Hainai by Motsi Dapul. Mikey's Tale A Hainai Short Story His name wasn't Mikey, but that was what the community took to calling him when he was raised by it, alongside his nan. He heard from the ladies by the corner store, punctuated by chattering observations about how he was a poor kid. For a while, it confused him. Since he wasn't particularly poor, and around Eglinton West he saw poorer, helped out at the soup kitchen sometimes. He learned around the time he was trusted enough to walk home from school by himself that they probably meant the parent thing. Which, sure. But honestly, he felt like he got lucky, in some ways. If he remembered his parents, he'd probably be a lot sadder. But he didn't. Beyond a few vague memories here and there. Mostly, he remembered living with his nan, with her gorgeous, wispy hair, and too big smile that lit up like a lantern whenever he said something that made her laugh. He wasn't poor. He was grateful, just like his nan taught him, for their blessings. Even when they talked behind his back, the community provided what his nan couldn't alone. They gave him a name other than the one he got from his nan, which was the only thing she'd ever given him, that he hated. They gave him places to eat, spend time, and play, where his nan wouldn't have to worry about him before dinner. They gave him... Carl. Thing was, 
Mikey was always an odd kid. Matter of fact, bookish and quiet. He got poked and prodded for the books he lugged around at school and on his way home. Sci-fi, ghost stories, the weird and wonderful that he poured through, whenever he got the chance. It wasn't that he was a loner. He just liked his own company as much as others. He'd be there for the street games, just good enough at the physical, to join in and not be last pick. But in between all the running around, he'd have his nose in a book, absent-mindedly pushing his curls out of his eyes every so often. The way the grown-ups called him Little Genius straddled the line between impressed and pitying. But everyone agreed he'd do his nan proud by doing well at school, even if he didn't seem to grow close with any of the kids he grew up with, who called him smart, with seething condescension, and who probably wouldn't have had anything to do with him, had it not been for Carl. Carl was a firecracker of a kid, trouble to the grown-ups and the greatest thing since sliced bread to everyone his age and younger. He was a bit of a ringleader, a risk-taker, and by some twist of fate, came to favor the little genius Mikey and his odd little stories. He would always prod Mikey to tell him about the wildest, most adult stories he read about in his horror books, and the two of them seemed attached at the hip when they were on the cusp of their double digits. Carl was... well, Carl was. Mikey loved them a lot, even if that was a dirty word to the kids that age, and with a sort of quiet adoration, followed him everywhere. However Carl felt about Mikey, he rewarded that loyalty with secrets he shared with nobody else. One of those secrets he found in a padlocked yard, unkempt and unguarded, a place Carl figured they wouldn't get in much trouble for entering, unless a passing cop was feeling particularly vindictive. They'd wandered off the beaten path, passing by houses just about ready for renovation, and Mikey had seen it first, a glint of something golden resting on a pile of plywood and branches, looking like it had been undisturbed for years. Mikey had kept watch while Carl got in and out, the excitement rattling both their hearts as Carl presented his quarry in triumph. A golden-framed cameo of a woman, rendered in the tiniest, most delicate of details. It was clearly very old, old as the churches and preserved architecture west of downtown, and Mikey posited it might be worth a lot of money to the people who cared about that sort of thing. Carl laughed, hiding the thing away. I'll sell it when I need the money, maybe. Carl assured in pragmatic tones. But meanwhile, it was his treasure, especially for him. Maybe he'd find the girl in the photo. Maybe it was his dream girl. A white girl, huh? Mikey laughed, playing along and pointing at the features of her cheeks and nose. And he and Carl nudged at each other, grappling lightly as they walked until he tripped over his own laces falling before some of the most polished, black, expensive shoes Mikey had ever seen. The man who had helped him up had a kind look about him, an easy smile and gentle hand as he brushed dust from Mikey's shoulder and checked he hadn't scarred, 
while Carl picked his bag up from where the contents had spilled onto the street. He looked young, but dressed like he was a lot older, though his suit fit him well. Mikey's eyes flickered to the little pop of red, familiar little flowers peeking out of his breast pocket. He looked between both boys when Carl put a protective hand on Mikey's back. Thanks, man, he said, friendly and cool, though Mikey could tell he was a bit apprehensive, unsure which way this conversation would turn. Mikey repeated the thanks, and the man laughed kindly, waving their thanks away. That's quite the treasure you have there, said the stranger, apropos of nothing. He was looking at Carl at the pocket of his shirt, and Mikey realized he must have slipped a little trinket in there when he wasn't looking. It's nothing. Just some old garbage, Carl said, still apprehensive. Mind if I take a look? asked the man amiably. Carl clearly did mind, quite a bit, but showed the man the cameo he'd found in the dirt, allowing him to turn it over in gloved hands. Strange to see with the weather tending warm. May I buy it off you? he asked. I like to collect this sort of thing. And you've made quite the find. He sounded amiable, but Carl seemed not to trust him. And so neither could Mikey. Carl was quick to refuse, with Mikey ready to back him up. But then the man pulled his wallet out and presented five hundred dollars and both boys were struck dumb. Neither had ever seen quite that much money in one place, and Mikey was sure Carl would take the deal. It was the smartest thing to do in that moment, and Mikey knew Carl to be bright and shrewd. Thanks, but, but no thanks, Carl said firmly, and no amount of nudging on Mikey's end seemed to sway him. It was a bizarre decision for something so small, abandoned in a trash pile. It's a lot of money, Mikey whispered, when the man nodded, mouth set in a neutral line. If you're sure, said the man, eyes drifting over to where Mikey was nudging his friend's arm. Carl, Mikey began, but he didn't finish, not when Carl elbowed him in the ribs, hard enough to hurt, to empty his lungs in a gasp of surprised pain. The man blinked, slow, and turned away, every step too loud in Mikey's ears. Carl helped him up, his apologies light, teasing, like he hadn't just hit Mikey where it hurt for trying to reason with him, like he hadn't just given up five hundred dollars in cash for a nothing of a trinket. When he questioned him later, both on their way home, even as the summer sun began to set with a late hour, Carl just shrugged, claimed it was worth more than that. In Mikey's mind, it made sense. They must have paid hundreds, no, thousands for things like these at museums and stuff. So much money to be put to so much work. That was what was on Mikey's mind. But then... Mikey reflected, after everything. Maybe that wasn't what Carl was thinking about at all.
Sergeant Dooley wasn't well pleased to be called out of bed at one in the morning to handle a special case. But that was what the promotion got him, so he couldn't complain, out loud, where the captain could hear. His former fellow officer, June, made a point of saying he was the best choice for the job, given he didn't have a wife to explain to, or kids to stick around for. Nobody to bother when he climbed out of bed and drove over to another grisly site to drown in a good whiskey. June meant it as insult enough on its own, but he didn't know Dooley's true feelings on the matter. Didn't know how hard it stung for Dooley, and he'd never have the right to know. Not much Dooley could do about it now, either way. June was an ass, but there were worse cops on the force. Dooley felt his heart drop when he saw the firefighters putting out a smoldering wooden structure, clearly long abandoned for not being up to code. Kids, they said. There were kids involved. And Dooley was here to talk to the one. The one that was left. The one that was talking crazy. It was, after all, his area of expertise. His department, as it were. Crazy. He found the kid at the back of an ambulance, wrapped in a shock blanket and cleaned up part of the way, clothes still covered in soot and a bit of blood. His own, the paramedic confirmed, from scarred hands and scraped knees. But fortunately, nothing more serious than that. A bruise red in the side of his cheek, but he seemed otherwise remarkably calm, staring into the middle distance until Dooley approached. He seemed alert when he tracked the sergeant's movements. Good cop, bad cop, he asked, his voice level. Good cop, I hope, Dooley responded. He knelt to be just under the kid's level, looking him in the eyes. Gotta ask you what happened tonight, cause I gotta tell you. The officer sounded pretty stumped. Friend died, the kid said, shrugging. He rubbed his eyes, but they both seemed pretty dry, reddened, possibly from all the smoke. I tried to... I tried to get him out, but... There wasn't anyone else, said one of the nearby firefighters. Just him. But it's possible someone else was deeper in, in the blaze. We'll be looking it over now. Mind if I take a look? After we've cleared it, sure. Tell him to look up. Dooley turned to the kid once more, brow furrowing. What? The kid stared back intently and repeated himself. Slowly. Seriously. Willing Dooley to understand. Tell him to look up when they go in. By the time the firefighters deemed it safe enough for Dooley to accompany one of them inside, the smoke had mostly cleared, but it was still too dark to see by without decent flashlights. The only other light they had to go by was the searing white of headlights spotlighting the entrance. The kid had to be brought to the hospital for the injuries, and to make sure there wasn't anything they were missing. If he was in shock, or had any internals, Dooley didn't want to be the guy keeping him from getting treated. He didn't want to be the bad cop. 
Not since the shit that went down when he was still an officer. Back in the 70s. There was almost nothing but bad cops back then. He knew that better than most. Saw what paranoia looked like in the police force. And how monstrous the results could be. As they made their way into the structure, Dooley had... a feeling. It was something he'd learned to trust over the years, that feeling. It was the closest thing that he had to any sort of qualifier for his one-man department. The only thing that justified his position at all. He'd learned to trust that feeling back when he was still running with a man who had much more than feelings to rely on. Knowing his intuition was built on years of seeing the most abnormal of cases bleed into the rest of his work. That feeling weighed in his heart when he found another firefighter, standing in the wreckage, face pale as he looked up, still as a stone. Dooley followed his gaze and sighed heavily, feeling the tiredness of a midnight call rush into him all at once. It was an impossible thing, utterly inexplicable, and was another anomaly to add to the pile of cases that justified keeping the department around. There, up above, were the charred remains of what Dooley suspected was a preteen boy, fused to the ceiling, face in a rictus grin of blackened bones, and arms outstretched as though reaching down, reaching for someone. When he nudged the firefighter back into attention, the young man said that this room was where the fire originated, though not from any source they could find. Closer to the ground. Dooley took a few photographs, noted some smaller details in his battered notebook. He'd lost count by this point what number this was. Eighth or ninth? He'd been keeping better track since... Well, since Jay left. It was good for the job to keep track. At one time, Dooley had kept the notes expecting to hand them off to Jay whenever he got back to Toronto. But as the years went by and he heard not a peep, he just started doing it out of habit. All he could do was take note. Once or twice he'd got it onto the scene before anyone really got hurt, but... The days of stopping the horrors from making victims of innocent people were long gone. Gone with a man who could have handled them once upon a time. Dooley was a poor substitute. But without Jay, he was the only one left to do the work. The only one left who could even remotely be considered an expert. And what a grand, cosmic joke that was. Planning to tell anybody about this? He asked, without judgment when the firefighter walked out looking unsteady on his feet. What? Can't stop you from telling. But we won't be releasing any of the pictures. Either people won't believe you, or there'll be a panic. No great outcomes either way, Dooley said. He put a hand on the firefighter's shoulder. I hope you don't tell, he said, for the family's sake. And the firefighter nodded, looking a bit clearer around the eyes. It was as much as Dooley could hope for, 
as he helped get the body down, before more people would swarm the site. He said to call him Mikey, so that's how Dooley greeted him, when he came to see him in the hospital room. His grandmother sat by his bed, looking uncertain when Dooley walked in, but he gave her a warm smile and a respectful tilt of the head, and she led him into the room. He's not in trouble, ma'am, said Dooley, but he's the only one with the information we need, so I'd like to get a side of the story. It took a bit more doing to convince her to wait outside the room while he got Mikey's statement, but eventually she acquiesced, standing watch like the most vigilant and dangerous of sentries. Did you get his body? Mikey asked, when Dooley pulled up a stool and sat in front of his hospital bed, head on. It's being processed now, Dooley confirmed. Forensics will confirm the cause of death, but I doubt we'll get answers about how he ended up there. I need to hear it from you. Mikey shook his head. You wouldn't believe me if I told you, he said decisively. I can promise. I don't think you can keep that kind of promise legally, Mikey said. Smart kid. Reminded Dooley a little too closely of someone. Though this boy was a lot more grim. A lot more serious than Jay had ever been. You're right. So I guess it's up to you to trust my promise. But here it is. I promise that I will believe you. Do you understand, Mikey? The boy was quiet for almost a minute. But Dooley was patient, letting him chew on that one and its implications. Do you know why this happened? Mikey asked voice quavering. No, Dooley said honestly. I've only ever observed, taken note, recorded my findings, hoping to stop it from happening to others. But I've never understood any of it. I knew someone who did, but, well, he's gone now. But maybe one day, all this information I have in my pocket will help me stop this from happening again. Or maybe someone else will have the answers, and I can help them. Then I'll tell you, said Mikey. And he did. Growing up, Mikey had the same nightmare, hounding him well into adulthood. It stopped scaring him eventually, after the first few go-arounds. But it was as big a part of his life as well, as Carl had been. Perhaps more frightening than the nightmare itself had been the story that was spun around Carl's death. A tragedy, but an example. If your children went down a bad path, they'd end up just like Carl, a bright future snatched away. Some whispered drugs, while others talked about meeting up with unsavory elements, gangs and thieves and dealers and criminals that were conjured wholesale out of nothing but a community's paranoia, a boogeyman, to scare the neighborhood kids into behaving. Mikey started hearing the words poor kid more and more often 
in the years following Carl's death. If they'd seen his nightmare, perhaps they'd have said it even more. The nightmare never began, not from any point he could measure. It simply was. He would be in it, without any memory of where it started, where he came from. He would be standing in the hallway of a familiar, ramshackle house. He would see before him a long path stretching out, and the shadow of someone he loved too far into the darkness for him to catch up to. Then beside him, he'd see a mirror. Logically, it should have been covered in dust, but it was pristine, highlighting the undisturbed dust and age of everything behind him. He'd stare into the mirror and register all that was behind him in the dark. Rickety old steps farther away in the mirror than they were behind him and photos lining the wall. He'd follow the line of the banister with his eyes, up and up, until the mirror cut off, just where he could see the pale feet of a child standing still on the steps too high to see. And then on his neck, a breath. He could not move as the child's feet began to descend, step by careful step. Far down enough, he realized there was no child. He'd want to run, but be rooted to the spot, as the thing behind him moved closer. And then, he would hear a familiar laugh, exuberant, once comforting. The thing that was not a child would writhe and burn away, and in the mirror, Carl would give him a handsome, toothy grin and throw an arm around his shoulders. He'd show Mikey the cameo he held between his fingers, and Mikey would look down and look back up again. Carl would be smiling, and Mikey would scream from out the black sockets where Carl's eyes once were came blackened blood crawling like so many little insects down and across his face and Carl would grin as though there was nothing wrong at all they would crawl over Mikey and he could not move and he would struggle against Carl's arm and he could not free himself his skin pulled at Carl's skin melted together like mixed wax, and he would scream and feel the blood of the insects crawling up his lips into his open mouth, and he'd still be screaming even as the fire erupted around them, burning the crawling things away, burning his throat, burning his scream away. He'd still be screaming when he woke up, and his grandmother held him tight and rocked him back and forth. He told her he dreamed of the fire and of Carl. He would not tell her the rest. He would not tell her his dream, or that it was not quite as he remembered. 
He would not tell her what he told the sergeant with the kind eyes that made you trust him. That Carl had been acting strange long before that night. That he was the one who'd insisted they go. And that Mikey was lured. Well, that Mikey had gone, too eager to stay by Carl's side, despite his better judgment. That he and Carl had been fused together, skin to skin, in a mockery of how he dreamed, and wished they would never be apart. As the ceiling began to open up in crawling, bloody swarms, and pull them both in, that all around them the house began to burn, seeming to engulf the swarms, and the two boys with it, before he heard, above his own screams, and the raging fire, the faint sound of whistling, and he dropped to the ground, torn away from the still-grinning Carl and his crawling blood, arms outstretched as if in welcome. Even then, he could not move, even as the fire licked at him, at the laces of his shoes and catching his hair. But then, the whistling came again, closer this time. Then, a gentle voice, and a song sung with it, as he was borne into the arms of another, and carried out of the burning house. A man's voice, gentle, in his ear. Oh, where have you been, Billy boy, Billy boy? A gentle lullaby and gentle arms rocking him to sleep until he found himself lying in the snow and was awoken by the sound of approaching sirens. You're listening to Hainai by Motsi Dapul. <laughs>